Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week, my co-host, Stanford Law Professor Rick Banks, our two interns, Everett Banks, Rick's son, and Justin Benjamin and I have a brainstorming session. Everett suggested that What Happens Next create a mission statement, and he took the first draft. I've made some edits, and this is our latest iteration. Here we go. During COVID, we need to discover our medical, economic, and public policy options. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth investigation of the most pressing issues of the day. We use a live conference call with experts who are given only six minutes to present their prepared remarks without interruption, which is then followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. The result is that our listeners get doused with a fire hose of information quickly and efficiently. What Happens Next is designed to be politically neutral so listeners can draw their own conclusions. I end the program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This Sunday's program is going to be more like a variety show with many different topics and themes. Our first speaker today is Barbara Reich. One of the strange aspects of our universal COVID experience is that we are spending an extraordinary amount of time at home with family. Our home is now more than just a sanctuary. It is also where we work, play, and entertain ourselves. As a result, it is incumbent on us to keep our home beautiful and organized. Barbara Reich is one of the world's leaders in organization. She is also the author of Secrets of an Organized Mom, From the Overflowing Closets to the Chaotic Play Areas, a room-by-room guide to decluttering and streamlining your home for a happier family. I look forward to hearing from Barbara on suggestions on how to improve our living environment that will make us happier and more productive. Our second speaker is Susan Marquis. Susan is the Dean of the Party Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica, California. It is the nation's oldest and largest public policy PhD program, founded 50 years ago to do policy research for the Rand Corporation. Susan will speak about finding new ways to implement public policy. Our third speaker is Chris Patterson. Chris is the Senior Director of Programs and Policy at the Institute for Nonviolence, Chicago. The Institute's mission is to end the cycle of violence in Chicago by applying Dr. Martin Luther King's principles, practices, and teachings of nonviolence to be a part of our daily lives. This organization uses conflict mediation, victim advocacy, and nonviolence training to reduce shootings. Chris is going to speak about how to defuse violence without resorting to the police. Our next speaker is Rob Sampson, who is the Henry Ford II Professor of the Social Sciences at Harvard. He is also the author of Great American City, Chicago, and the Enduring Neighborhood Effect. Rob is going to speak about how community and neighborhood influences the prevalence of crime. Our next speaker is Nancy Bristow, who is the History Department Chair at the University of Puget Sound. Nancy is the author of the book, The American Pandemic, The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Epidemic. Nancy will speak about the cost of forgetting. COVID-19 in parallels with the 1918 influenza pandemic. Our final speaker is Elizabeth Alka, who is professor of English at the University of Richmond. Elizabeth has written a book entitled Viral Modernism, The Influenza Pandemic and Interwar Literature. I've assigned our listeners to read Catherine Ann Porter's classic short story, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. I've asked Elizabeth to discuss this important literary work and its connection with today. I want to spend a brief moment to reflect on our shared COVID experience. This is the 26th episode of What Happens Next. 
In other words, we have now been participating together for almost half a year. It is symbolic that at this particular chronological moment, it is the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah started at sundown on Friday. My favorite prayer from this holiday service is Avinu Malkinu. Here Jews ask God to be inscribed in the Book of Life. It is during this 10-day period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that God decides who shall live and who shall die in the coming year. In this pandemic year, the prayer seems more appropriate excuse me, than ever as encouragement to change our lives for the better. I pray that each of us can stay healthy to enjoy this sweet year and live to see it through. This call is being recorded. If you have any questions, please email me. Uh, let's turn to our first speaker, Barbara Reich. Barbara, can you go ahead, please? Thank you. You may be asking yourself what organization has to do with today's topic, crime, punishment, and social change. And the answer is that organizing is the anecdote to uncertainty. Organizing allows you to shift from focusing on all those things that we can't control to what you can control. That is the organization of your physical spaces, your home and office, time, and digital spaces. And when you feel more in control, your anxiety and stress are decreased. So let me start with organizing physical spaces. As Larry said, given that so many people are working from home or splitting their time between work and home, the way those spaces are organized has become more important than ever. This isn't frivolous. In 2011, the Princeton University Neuroscience Institute studied how the human brain's visual cortex processes multiple visual stimuli at the same time, and they found that clutter decreases productivity and creativity. Also, the UCLA Center for the Everyday Lives of Families found that cortisol, which is the stress hormone in saliva, increased in the presence of clutter, particularly in women. In chapter one of my book, I talk about the four-step method of organization purge, organize, design, and maintain. My intention today is to provide tips in each of these areas. Let's start with purging. Of course, there's the obvious questions you can ask about whether you've used it in the last year or whether you'll ever use something again, but let's go beyond that. You need to ignore sunk costs. How much something costs is far less relevant than whether you want, need, or have a place to put an item. You want to avoid aspirational clutter. Anything that's not relevant to the life you actually live should be eliminated. The clothing and a size you haven't worn in years or the equipment for a hobby you never pursued. And by the way, social media is the worst form of aspirational clutter. You want to avoid sentimental clutter. Other people's memories are not your responsibility and guilt is not a reason to keep something. Once you've purged, you can then organize. In order to organize, the most important thing is to group your life things together. In your home or your office, this is the only way to know how much of anything you have or when you need more. And this is true whether you're talking about black t-shirts, batteries, binder clips, or light bulbs. You also want to have rigidly defined locations for your things. I call this the rule of the toothbrush. And the reason why you never lose your toothbrush is because it only gets used in one place and it never leaves that place. So you want to apply the toothbrush rule to everything in your home and office. You want to store items where you use them. If you need to access something frequently, make sure it's in prime real estate where you can get to it easily. When we talk about designing your space, it's important to use uniform storage containers, uniform hangers, bins, and boxes. This eliminates the visual noise in an area and allows you to focus on what you're looking for. And finally, in terms of maintenance, 
Labeling is the only way to ensure that an organizational system is maintained, and it also forces the people that you live with to be accountable. Now, in addition to organizing your physical spaces, I'd love to spend a few minutes talking about time management and give you some time management tips. The first one is to avoid multitasking. Multitasking is highly correlated with stress. Now, we live in a society where multitasking is a badge of honor, but the truth is that multitasking is counterproductive. When you multitask, you make mistakes. Clifford Ness and Daniel Goleman at Stanford found in their research that multitasking can result in a 20% degradation in work quality and a 30% decrease in productivity. Multitasking is also taxing on the brain. This is because our brains cannot separate trivial from important decisions. They both deplete neural energy equally. So when you're engaged in two activities at the same time, both get shortchanged. One of my favorite tips is to batch process email, meaning you, if you can check your email at predetermined times during the day instead of constantly throughout the day, this will allow you to avoid context shifting. And you won't get fewer emails, but when you're really focused when you're responding, you'll save 30% of your time when you respond. You also want to schedule times for deep work based on your most productive time of the day. And when you do this, you need to turn off all the pings and rings and notifications on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer, so you can focus on cognitively demanding tasks. You want to invest in time-saving systems. Creating systems is the best way to reduce the brain drain of thinking through repetitive tasks. So whether you have a weekly or monthly menu or have a uniform like Mark Zuckerberg with his hoodies, reducing the amount of decisions you have to make frees your mind to think about more important things. You also want to reduce options. Having a few choices might be nice, but I've been in homes with 12 different cereal choices for breakfast and four types of toothpaste for a toddler to choose from. Too many choices will certainly slow you down. You also want to determine your priorities for the next day every day. If you have no specific goals for the day, you can find that you'll sit down at your computer and you can spend the entire day reacting to other people's priorities, responding to emails instead of initiating emails, being reactive instead of strategic. So at the end of each day, if you write down what you want to accomplish the next day, you have a better chance of achieving your goals. Finally, I want to spend just another minute on digital organization. Now that we need to be more flexible about where we're working and working in multiple places, creating a digital filing system is more important than ever before. You can start by creating digital files for the existing projects you're working on and the subjects of the emails currently in your inbox. Often your digital filing system will mirror your paper filing system. You want to touch each email only once. Years ago I used to talk about touching each piece of paper only once. You want to avoid opening an email, not responding, opening it again, not responding. When you do this multiple times, you're more likely to forget to respond because it becomes like white noise to you. And when you do open an email, you should only have two actions after responding, delete it or digitally file it. You don't want to save emails as a visual reminder to do something. I work with people that will have 27,000 emails and they'll tell me with a straight face that they save them to act as a reminder of something. Think about if you're saving a piece of paper to remind you to do something, but it's buried under stacks and stacks of paper on a, on a desk. It's a useless system, and the same is true of emails. Instead, I encourage you to use a to-do list. You want to change subject lines in emails. This is an important habit because often how an email change ends is not how it began, and it's much easier to find emails later on when the subject line describes the subject of the email. And finally, my last tip is to unsubscribe from any digital communication that you don't want.
Barbara, thank you so much. I'll, I'll come back to you in Q&A and go over through all those different various improvements. Um, our next speaker is Susan Marquis. She is the Dean of the Party Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica. Um, go ahead, Susan, tell us um, about public policy. Thanks, Larry. Uh, you know, in your intro, uh, just prior to your very moving prayer, you spoke about public policy and solutions to the crises we found ourselves in the midst of in 2020. So what I'm going to talk about is in order to find those solutions, we're going to have to do something radically different. We have to have come up with a whole new approach to public policy. And a key element of that approach is what my friend Karen Yanis has called democratizing public policy. The idea here is uh, to talk about what it is democratizing public policy, why do we need to do this, and how can we do this. So first of all, let's start with what it, what it is. This changing definition of public policy is a matter of moving beyond the traditional view of policy solutions and policy making being uh, owned solely by governments, particularly the federal government. Instead, public policy should be about who is affected, our communities and the people who live in them, and recognize that the solution can and must come from across a wide range of community organizations, the business community, nonprofits, pulling from all the talent we have in society. And so with democratizing public policy, this, this is about bringing in those new voices, new ideas, an understanding of how to affect real and sustainable change that can only come from the communities in which we live. So, all right, so why in the world should we do this? Well, if 2020 hasn't convinced you, I'm not sure what will. Um, it's certainly, 2020 has certainly made clear what's been true for a decade or more. What we're doing is not working. Traditional approaches to public policy and traditional actors in public policy haven't solved the complex and persistent problems we've been wrestling with for generations, quality of education, access to health care, environmental issues, climate change, employment opportunities, poverty, the overall quality of life. In some cases, after pouring money into these issues, the problems have actually become worse. Here's a couple of examples of how things have gotten worse. Look at homelessness, the rising numbers, the complexity of this problem with mental illness, land use and urban planning, fragility of economic situations. Just a few years ago, another example, Ann Case and Angus Deaton's work on deaths of despair, the surprising and the first time ever in the history of the U.S. increasing deaths among white people ages 40 to 60. We've seen things getting worse, the, the exacerbation of these issues with uh, the pandemic and COVID-19 and it's dramatic differences in infection rates and deaths for people of color. I mean, in Chicago, where you're from, uh, African-Americans are a third of the population and yet half of those tested positive and three quarters of those uh, dying from COVID-19. Another example I'll offer is recent work by, uh, raised by recent work by Carter Price and Catherine Edwards at RAND on the stunning exacerbation of inequality and income growth over the last 40 years. For the first few decades after World War II, economic growth occurred equitably across all income, uh, income levels. But in the last 40 years, most income earning adults have seen little or no real growth since 1975, while those in the top 10% have seen 160% growth and those in the top 1% more than 300% growth in real income. So while most American workers have not seen any growth in their income, 
uh, over the past 40 years, real growth in their income, this is, means a tab of about $50 trillion for 90% of U.S. workers and a cost of about 40000 a year in income for, every, for the median worker. The last issue I want to highlight is uh, we've seen in particular this year the profound call for social justice and racial equity that rose across more than 2,000 American towns and cities this summer. It made clear that these are issues that despite the successes of the civil rights movement, the U.S. has never fully reckoned with. Um, I'll draw to your attention a Rolling Stone interview that just came out with Bruce Springsteen when he talked about how he talks for many of us, I think, about how little he has understood. For Springsteen, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement hasn't, has unearthed truth he hadn't quite grasped even when he became the rare white rock star to take on police violence against black Americans with a song called American Skin, 41 Shots, back in 2000. Springsteen said, quote, white supremacy and white privilege have gone much deeper than I thought they did, he says. I think my feeling previously to the past three or four years was that racism and white supremacy and white privilege were veins in our extremities rather than an aorta that cuts through the very heart of the nation, which, which is what he feels it is now. So you look at these issues, homelessness, health disparities, racial equity, education and employment, access and quality, we've not made the improvements you would have thought we've made, uh, we would make uh, over the history of our country. So we need to find a new way to go after these problems. So how do we go about this? How do we democratize public policy? The first thing first step is just recognizing the policy-making environment has changed dramatically. Government still matters, but st most uh, significantly nonprofits, NGOs, philanthropists, and the private sector are now actually, whether explicitly or implicitly, actually making and implementing policy. You see this uh, most obviously in tech, where uh, you see privacy decisions made by Apple, for example, about access to iPhones and Facebook making policy decisions about collecting and selling data. I mean, what we see in the tech world is that engineers and scientists are driving the bus. They just get on that bus and drive, but there's no destination. So someone needs to add and navigate, and that's where policy comes in, and that's why we have to take this new approach. Uh, Technology has been the change you've seen most dramatically in the last 10 to 20 years, but this shift in public policy, the shift away from the government actually implementing most of policy, didn't just begin with the tech industry. It actually started several decades ago, this idea of government by proxy, uh, where nearly 90% of federal government funding is not executed by federal employees. Uh, contractors. It, instead, it's executed by contractors, nonprofits, state and local governments. So we have to recognize how policymaking has changed, and there's a whole lot of actors involved, and we need to now bring new voices in to make sure we're uh, effective in what we're trying to do. So these bringing in of new voices, voices that have been ignored or never allowed in the public policy debates, uh, how do we do this? First of all is getting, uh, recognizing that we have sources of policymakers that we've never leveraged. We need to get beyond the name brand schools that typically play in public policy graduate programs or in policy leadership positions and start leveraging the talent at every college and university across the U.S. 
We need to introduce the idea of public policy into every discipline in undergraduate curricula. Make sure that that chemistry major at Florida A&M, the engineering, the engineer student at uh, Colorado School of Mines, or the pre-med student at Xavier University of Louisiana, all of them understand that the work they're going to be doing actually has an effect on society and so has an effect on public policy. We need to understand that policymaking, the passing of laws and writing of regulations, is only part of the game. In order to really affect sustainable change, positive sustainable change, you have to understand what's going on on the ground, both to generate successful solutions and to implement them effectively. So it's essential that public policy and this idea of policy get beyond we've passed the law and declaring victory. Instead, we have to focus on the hard work of implementation. This all requires deep and long-lasting partnerships with communities themselves. And then the last piece I'd suggest that we need to work on is recognizing there's long-term and complex issues we have to address, those we've been wrestling with, fair housing, improving employment opportunities, but there's also a set of near-term actions we can take that will have an immediate effect. And I'll give an example here of the COVID-19 situation. We need to move very quickly to do targeted messaging that's culturally sensitive, that recognizes the reality of uh, people, uh, people's lives, their uh, cultural concerns, their family concerns, their living situations, and start targeting that messaging to get rid of the stigma and to uh, alleviate the mistrust that so many have in the federal government. So the idea here, to wrap it up, is we can't go, uh, we can't continue business in the old ways. We need to take on new ways, we need to bring in new voices, and we're ready to get moving on that here. Thank you, Susan. Um, our next speaker is Chris Patterson. Chris is the Senior Director of Programs and Policy at Institute uh, for Nonviolence Chicago. Chris, tell us about your organization. So the, the profession of street outreach is nothing new. Uh, for generations, street outreach in many forms have been reaching out to those who have been disenfranchised and who need services. In the city of Chicago, Cure Violence and Cease Fire for decades has uh, kind of been at the helm of the street outreach. The Institute for Nonviolence Chicago was established in 2016 to really just bring a holistic and broader view of what street outreach looked like across the country. One of the things I think we've been able to do really uniquely is add other components that different models across the nation are um, implementing as we speak. From 2016 to 2019, the community of Austin, one of three that we cover at the Institute for Nonviolence, um, Austin is one of the communities in Chicago. It's 77 communities in Chicago. Austin is the largest of those 77. It is actually the only community that has the largest population of African-American uh, people in the community with over 100,000 uh, people. Um, Primarily, those, the reason we picked Austin was because in Austin in 2016, as it is now, Austin was leading the city of Chicago in shootings and homicides. It was leading with reentry for young African-American men, had the highest unemployment rate for African-American men, and so many disenfranchised families and families who did not own uh, property. From 2016 to 2019, there has been a more than a 50% reduction in shootings in the community of Austin. And while we may hail that as a slight victory, even with the 50% plus reduction in shootings, Austin still led the city. 
our other neighborhood in West Garfield Park per capita has more shootings and homicides than any other component, uh, any other community in the city as well. And then our last is the back of the yards community, which is a mixed community of Latino and African American community members. The work that we're doing, building out and expanding has really just leaned on the idea that the community are the answers to violence reduction. And how do we do that? We do that by leveraging relationships, building relationships with those who are at risk of either shooting someone or being shot, and then working with them to identify their goals, pushing them toward their dreams. In many ways, outreach, which is not unique to just Chicago, reaches out to those, uh, as we think about violence reduction, to that percentage of the population that many people are ready to write off. They're often gang involved. They've been using drugs. They've got felony records. And so all the way up until street outreach dealing with violence reduction, the answer for these kind of this population of people was always lock them up. But since the 70s, we understand that locking people up isn't the call to action and it hasn't made the communities actually safer. One of the things that we've been seeing and, you know, one of the small victories uh, in addition to the, the, the violence reduction that was happening in the year 2019 was that community members started calling the Institute for Nonviolence and organizations like ours to remedy issues prior to 911 calls coming in. And that didn't happen all the time, but it happened enough. The idea is that if someone is sitting on a stoop um, and loitering, that we would prefer community members call us. Let us allow us to leverage our relationships and, and talk to the young people who are congregating in front of their residences so feel, people don't feel like they have to call the police. Much like much of the world, you know, the anxiety 2020 happened to all of us. And one of the things that has happened to the street outreach profession is that it has morphed into more of a public health and public safety organization, which is then bringing us closer to policy, which I'll discuss in a minute. Since COVID has happened in March, our amazing staff of more than 90 staff have been out working seven days a week, 24 hours on call service to address gun and violence, gun and violence, homicides, in addition to passing out PPEs, more than 3,000 boxed meals per week, and we haven't even tipped scales. We're handing out We've given out um, COVID-19 trainings to more than 105 participants and every staff member of the Institute for Nonviolence so they're better educated to talk to community members and how to keep safe during the COVID-19 epidemic. As we think about the epidemic and all the issues that come up that force people into cycles of violence is kind of like how I think about it. So when we see someone has a gun in their hand and when a, when a shooting happens, obviously we want to figure out how to get in the middle of it and mediate the conflict so that other shootings don't occur. But one of the things that I think makes the Institute for Nonviolence unique is that we're asking how did that gun get in the hand in the first place? We need to be thinking about root causation. Why wasn't the individual who was involved in a gun altercation? Why weren't they in school? Why weren't they working? Where was their family structure? We need to be thinking about the root cause of why people are out on the streets in the first place. And I don't think that's where a lot of organizations have really taken their step. And so with that, it leads us towards a policy solution base. The idea that we can create a sustainable and equitable policy that actually affects communities like Austin, West Garfield Park, and Back of the Yards. 
we want our schools in Austin to feel and look like they do in overserved communities. You know, in, in schools like in Austin, the teachers are still buying toilet paper, school supplies, and in other parts of the city inside the same school system, they have an abundance of everything, computer labs, more than enough toilet paper to go around. When we start addressing the root cause of why African-American men are disproportionately locked up, even though they're not the highest percentage of people actually using hard drugs, they're the persons that fill the prisons because of those hard drugs. When we start thinking about the welfare, the social, emotional, and mental welfare of the people who we serve, I think we're going to have a safer and more peaceful Chicago. So those are the three components that make up the Institute for Nonviolent Chicago. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Okay, our next speaker is Rob Sampson. Rob is the Henry Ford II Professor of the Social Sciences at Harvard. He's going to talk about community and neighborhood influences on crime prevalence. Go ahead, Rob. Thanks, Larry. In my view, neighborhood is a fundamental organizing dimension of urban life. Neighborhood differences of the sort that Chris was just discussing have persisted across historical eras despite unprecedented social transformations, including the recent era of mass incarceration and the crime decline. The consistency of spatial inequality, even going back to ancient cities and stretching to the present, is a powerful signal that points to the general and enduring process of neighborhood effects. So my argument is that neighborhoods have an important influence on our lives. They're not merely settings, but determinants of the quality and quantity of human behavior in their own right. And those effects are lasting, hence the enduring neighborhood effect. And that was the focus of my last book, Chicago and the Enduring Neighborhood Effect. But it's also the focus of other research that I thought would be useful maybe to talk a little bit about today conversationally. And what I'd like to do is engage three concepts that bear on debates over criminal justice, violence, policing, and the pandemic, and I think connect to uh, some of the previous conversations. So I uh, hope there's questions. Uh, people should be <laughs> uh, queuing them up. So first is a concept that in a way is counter to policing, informal social controls. Let's focus on that for a moment. Sociologists have long argued that crime is prevented more by social ties and citizen actions than deterrence or formal controls by the police, the courts, or prison, which is more the, the focus, really, of um, economists in terms of research on crime. A while back, my colleagues and I developed the concept of collective efficacy to study this process. Our argument, in short, is that cohesion and trust among neighbors combined with a willingness to engage informal rule setting and engaging in solving local problems is really fundamental to explaining crime, and it's also fundamental to helping us understand some of the other correlates of crime, like the concentration of poverty. Why is the concentration of poverty related to rates of violence. Well, uh, one of the mediating or explanatory factors, we think, is this combination of, of trust, cohesion, and willingness to intervene. So in an original community survey, we asked citizens, went door to door and asked them about, for example, whether they were willing um, to help out 
in need in the neighborhood. We use various uh, specific examples and kind of a vignette to get at it. The idea here is not really about deep friendship ties or what we sometimes hear of as the notion of social capital. What we're really talking about is in actions by, by neighborhoods, neighbors, and it bears not just on these sort of everyday processes of social control, but it also generalizes, I think, to broader issues of import to the well-being of neighborhoods. So, for example, the differential ability of communities to extract resources, to respond to cuts in public services, such as police patrols, cuts in schools, which is a big issue right now in Chicago. So measuring this, what we found was that collective efficacy had a persistent relationship with lower rates of violence, and it helps explain the relationship between concentrated poverty, which reduces collective efficacy. There's been many extensions of this, and um, maybe we can talk about that in, in, in the Q&A. But the second uh, concept I'd like to talk about problematizes, if you will, the concept of neighborhood. We don't just live in our neighborhoods. A lot of the theory about things like concentrated poverty and even collective efficacy assumes, or at least is built on the idea of relations with neighbors. But we know from common experience and research from travel diaries that on any typical day of the week, people are leaving their neighborhoods. Despite this fact, research on the role of concentrated poverty and social isolation from this sort of extra local or non-neighborhood perspective is sparse. So my colleagues and I set out to address this. Uh, I won't get into the details, but using large-scale data that pinpoints where individuals travel from their home neighborhoods in the 50 largest U.S. cities, it's a massive database, we examined how race and class of the neighborhood is related to social isolation. A couple findings I think are potentially interesting. One, we found that residents from poor neighborhoods and residents from segregated African-American neighborhoods traveled as far and to as many different neighborhoods as did those from other neighborhoods. So in a way, contradicting the idea of social isolation, that is a, a very popular concept. However, we did uncover notable differences in the race and class compositions of the neighborhoods visited. Residents of poor neighborhoods are substantially isolated from contacts with non-poor neighborhoods. And in particular, residents of pr primarily black and Hispanic neighborhoods whether poor or not, are far less exposed to non-poor neighborhoods and, and white middle-class neighborhoods. So race trumps class, hugely so. Another way to think about it is that segregation, residential segregation, which has been the focus of research for the last several decades, is reproduced in daily uh, patterns of travel throughout the metropolis. And we think this has considerable implications. An example of that is, a, is another paper um, that's forthcoming American Sociological Review, where my colleagues and I developed the concept of triple neighborhood disadvantage. And what we mean by this is that a neighborhood's well-being depends not only on its own socioeconomic conditions, but also on the conditions of neighborhoods its residents visit and are visited by. So not all poor neighborhoods are the same, in other words. Some poor neighborhoods, the residents are traveling to other poor neighborhoods in, in many cases, only other poor neighborhoods, and they're being visited by residents from other poor neighborhoods. So it's a, it's a different way of thinking about social isolation. And when a neighborhood is characterized by those features, we consider it to be triply disadvantaged, and we show that that has a 
consistent predictive relationship with lower rates of violence across 50 American cities at the neighborhood level. We control for all the usual suspects. I could go into the details later. But these findings, I think, implicate mobility patterns beyond the home, beyond the neighborhood as an important source of disadvantage and furthermore, I think bears on a broad range of phenomena beyond crime, including community capacity, that is, it's harder for residents to organize or extract resources under those conditions, transmission in a pandemic, and racial inequality. And in fact, what we found is that poor, we, we know that predominantly black neighborhoods are disproportionately poor, but in our data across all these cities, about 10 times more likely to be poor, but they are 35 times more likely to be triply disadvantaged. And so, in short, neighborhood disadvantage, both within the neighborhood and in this mobility-based sense, I think help us understand a lot of what's going on in terms of explanations of crime and attitudes uh, towards the law. Um, find, for example, that legal cynicism, dissatisfaction with the police, a lot of what's now in the news, appropriately so, not wholly, but is in part related to these sorts of neighborhood conditions. In other words, how structural racism is brought about is in part through these processes of, of spatial inequality and neighborhood effects. Um, just to give you one final example, um, while African Americans in our data are much more cynical about the law, and there are good reasons for that, obviously, and dissatisfied with the police, that in part is because they're more likely to live in neighborhoods where disadvantage is so concentrated in multiple ways. So when we look at it carefully and we control for those things, the racial differences are considerably reduced. In other words, the residents' estrangement from the police is explained in an important way, I think, by these neighborhood differences. So that's um, really all I have to say. I, I just want to put those concepts out there, the idea of informal collective efficacy, the notion of thinking beyond the neighborhood in this way about triple disadvantage, and how that all bears on racial inequality, attitudes toward the law. And I think there's some policy implications in all that, but I've hit my six-minute mark, I believe, Larry, so I will turn it back to you. Perfect. Okay, um, we're going to switch away from crime and neighborhood effects to uh, the 1918 influenza. Uh, Nancy Bristow comes to us as the History Department Chair at the University of Puget Sound, and she's written uh, the 1918 influenza in her book, American Pandemic. Nancy, please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. In 1918, Americans were stunned by influenza, a scourge that in that case swept around the globe and killed 675,000 Americans and some 50 to 100 million people worldwide. It felt to Americans like a plague of olden times. They were shocked, and that shock really reflected their belief that this kind of thing wasn't supposed to happen to them. Over the preceding half century, the bacteriological revolution had led public health leaders and thereby the American people to believe that epidemics were a thing of the past. Well, this hubris stalled responses to the pandemic that might have lessened its impact. There was a lot to learn from this experience if Americans had chosen to study it and to give it a place in their public consciousness. 
But the story of this national tragedy in 1918 didn't fit very well with Americans' narrative about themselves as a modern, triumphant, exceptional people. And so Americans forgot it, by and large. This failure of memory has had extraordinary consequences, evidenced, I would argue, most recently in the stunning parallels between COVID-19 and this earlier catastrophe. I want to tell you about four similarities to make my point. First, like those in 1918, we too seem to have believed that we were going to dodge this disease, and this stalled our responses in the early months of the year. As one obvious example, the President of the United States purported to be surprised by the advent of the pandemic. And then on February 24th, he told the country, the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. On March 2nd, he declared, the United States is right now ranked by far number one for preparedness. And even as late as July, when cases were rising precipitously, he could still say to the nation, we're going to be very good with the coronavirus. None of this helped the nation to prepare or mobilize. And so secondly, the nation's experience of both of these pandemics has been really worsened by inadequate leadership at the federal level in the person of the president. When the pandemic hit in the fall of 1918, the United States was in the closing months of World War I. President Wilson relied on the selling of government bonds, liberty loans, to finance the war. When the pandemic struck, he refused to cancel the fourth liberty loan drive. Cities and towns across the country kicked off their campaigns with massive parades and rallies, what today we would call super spreader events. Wilson also failed to halt troop shipments to Europe. And he never spoke publicly of the pandemic, neglecting altogether the role of presidential leadership. Well, if Wilson's silence is quite striking, President Trump's ongoing commentary has been misleading and divisive. According to CNN, between January 29th and May 3rd, the president made 215 false claims about the coronavirus pandemic. He's promoted treatments like hydroxychloroquine, discouraged the wearing of masks, encouraged protests against social distancing, and has interfered with the scientists of the CDC. Today, as in 1918, too, this failure by the president to promote a considered, sustained, federally coordinated public health effort has produced a smorgasbord, really, of public health responses, a third parallel. The strategies available for containing influenza in 1918 were remarkably almost identical with those we're employing today. Education, hygiene, social distancing, closures, masking, and quarantining. And like today, each community's response was shaped by the variation in the power of state and local public health boards, the particular political environments of different communities, and the attitudes of the public. They were vastly varying across the country. Some cities, like Milwaukee or Seattle, imposed restrictions early, had cooperation from the citizenry, and reimposed restrictions as necessary. And as a result, they fared significantly better in terms of morbidity and mortality rates than others, say Philadelphia or San Francisco, which met the crisis with slower and consistent responses. Now, unfortunately, despite the clear evidence that we have from 1918, in fact, of the value of coordinated and sustained public health restrictions, we've seen the exact same pattern emerge in 2020, with responsibility relegated to local officials and thereby a wildly inconsistent program to control the pandemic, resulting, of course, in consequences I don't really need to recount here, but that we are suffering in different ways depending on where we live, and that we do not have that nationally coordinated program that would have improved the chances for all of us. And that then turns me to my final parallel, the reality that in both 1918 and 2020, 
the pandemics have caused horrific suffering and suffering that has been inequitably distributed by class and race. In 1918, without a social safety net, the loss of a breadwinner threw poor families into financial chaos, hunger, cold, even homelessness. Too often, people of color entered the pandemic with much lower life expectancies related to inadequate access to health care and unhealthy working and living conditions, the costs of white supremacy, in other words. Emergency hospitals were often segregated or even closed to people of color altogether. Today, too, economic and racial disparities are landing with force. The poor are more likely to have COVID, be hospitalized, and die from COVID. They're far less able to endure the layoffs and loss of jobs the pandemic has produced. People of color are overrepresented among the poor, and even those with higher incomes, as other speakers have noted, are suffering at higher rates than white Americans. In other words, race trumps class. Overall, data adjusted for age differences suggests that African Americans are dying at 3.6 times the rate of white people, members of the Latinx community at 2.5 times the rate, indigenous Americans and Pacific Islanders at rates much higher than their proportion of the population. So what does it all mean? What can we learn from realizing that we are so much like those who came before us 102 years ago? It appears we have yet to come to terms with our belief in American exceptionalism and that we continue to believe that science can save us. We seem not to have accepted the vital role the federal government must play in a modern nation or to fund those agencies that might have prepared and guided us. We've not yet decided that the richest nation in the world really can afford to feed, clothe, house, and provide health care to all who inhabit it. And the nation has hard and crucial work to deal with our systemic and institutionalized white supremacy. So I'm left to wonder if we'll learn from this experience, if we will decide to remember, if we will decide to do the hard work of learning from the experiences we're going through so that we can build a future that's better than what we've just endured, or whether we will, like so many in 1918, turn away from the lessons the catastrophe might offer us. Thank you. Thanks, Nance. Okay. Um, our final speaker is Elizabeth Outka, and she's going to Tell us about uh, Catherine Ann Porter's short story, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Elizabeth, go ahead. Oh, all right. So literature communicates differently than other mediums. It captures senses, emotions, atmospheres, revealing the lived experiences woven through the history, statistics, law, and policies. And literature is also adept at capturing major historical events and their impact, which is why my book began with a mystery why the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, which, as Nancy just mentioned, killed between 50 and 100 million people and more in the United States than the country lost in all the wars of the 20th and 21st century combined, why does it seem to make so little impact on the literature? So I discovered that the pandemic's traces are actually everywhere, even if often hidden, woven into familiar works like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, but today, I'll highlight a few things we might learn from Catherine Ann Porter's novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Porter's work explores the influenza pandemic directly, written after her own near-death experience in the outbreak. And for those of you who haven't um, done your reading, um, you're, along with my, uh, many of my students, um, the story concerns a young couple, Adam and Miranda, who are living in Denver in November of 1918. Adam's a soldier about to leave for the war. Miranda's a journalist. And both assume that Adam will die in battle. He seems, as Miranda observes, like a sacrificial lamb ready for slaughter. 
the story follows them as they attend plays, visit restaurants, and walk the streets, and as funeral processions for influenza victims gradually become more prominent. Miranda ends up catching the virus, and Adam nurses her until she enters the hospital, and after a terrifying plunge into a fever and delirium, Miranda recovers, only to learn that Adam has died of the virus. So the story resonates in our COVID moment, and I'll highlight three elements. First, Porter captures the way a pandemic shifts basic reality paradigms with dizzying speed. Knowledge becomes outdated overnight, naivete turns to realization, and basic truths change. Porter encodes these swings in her story by the different ways she tells it, moving between a hallucinatory dreamlike language to convey the virus's invasion of bodies and a more straightforward realist style to convey the war. Part of the challenge for the characters is to read correctly the story they are in. Saturated in a war story that is terrible but familiar, this narrative is what seems real. They all know their roles, male soldier, female civilian, the threat, artillery warfare, the enemies, the allies. They know how this story ends, death for the soldier. And caught up in this paradigm, they miss that reality has changed, that the enemy is now invisible, that women face equal threats, that the home front is as dangerous as the front lines. And there are consequences for misreading. They as they worry over the threat to the soldier's body in war, they circulate through restaurants, theaters, hospitals, and workplaces. And even after Miranda falls ill, they touch and kiss and share cigarettes, believing themselves in an outdated story as a new delirium reality takes over the narrative, the narrative and their lives. Porter captures the emotional and physical jolts of a constantly shifting reality and the inherent risks of failing to adjust quickly enough to a new paradigm, a lesson we are learning anew each day. Second, the story brings the suffering of the body into focus. For those of us not currently in the grip of a deadly virus, it becomes easy to think of COVID as an abstraction, something feared but also understood as a collection of symptoms, as a generator of statistics, as a reason for staying home and wearing a mask, but still something abstract. Porter's story plunges the reader into the reality of a viral invasion, the terror it brings as pain takes over, as perception fractures, as death comes closer. What words can describe a suffering and an oblivion defined by an obliteration of the self? Porter describes, and the following are some quotations, uh, uh, different fragments of quotations. She describes this a fog concealing all terror and all weariness, uh, a mind that tottered and slithered and broke, the unbelievable current of agony burning through the veins, and how when Miranda tries to explain it, language fails, and what emerges from her mouth are only incoherent sounds of animal suffering, she says. Porter captures the body's pain and sense of coming annihilation, in part by capturing the difficulty of describing them. And she also reminds her readers of the lingering aftermath for survivors, how the body is weakened and changed, and how time has split into a before and after. Remembering the experience of viral invasion may help remind us of the urgency of stopping it. And finally, Porter's story grants a vivid picture of the particular crime and punishment a pandemic brings with its invisible enemy. 
Miranda wrestles with what I term contagion guilt, a haunting fear that she has passed a deadly infection to another. Such guilt abounds in pandemics when roots of transmission are known generally but rarely specifically. We fear but do not know the precise means of transfer and the what-ifs can haunt us. What if we hadn't gone to that restaurant? What if I hadn't visited him that day? What if we had driven rather than taking a train? Would they have lived? Such guilt can live in the mind as a low-lying presence unresolved and unresolvable. In Pale Horse, Pale Rider, Miranda dreams of a nightmarish invisible bow coming from her direction, one that shoots arrows at Adam, who dies again and again despite her attempted interventions. The image captures her knowledge of the danger, her ambiguous crime, her ongoing punishment, and her inability to stop the transfer. Porter's story reminds us, though, that we can stop the transfer. It reminds us of the consequences of not trying, and it understands and reflects back at us the suffering a deadly virus brings and what happens when we ignore it. We cannot address what we don't see, a message that speaks to the pandemic of racism and inequality and the viral pandemic ravaging our society unequally right now. We should all emerge change from this experience. As Porter later said, the experience, quote, simply divided my life. And after I was in some strange way altered, it took me a long time to go out and live in the world again, unquote. And we will and should emerge altered. Thank you. Excellent. Um, all right, that ends our pre-range talks. And now we go straight to Q&A. And I'm going to start with Elizabeth. Um, that was a, a terrific explanation of that uh, novella. Uh, I have a question. Why do you think she waited 21 years to write this uh, novella? Why did she have to... Um, why do you think there was such a delay in analyzing the importance or the implication of the disease on herself and her lover? I think that we see this happen in art a lot, right? It takes a lot of time sometimes for an experience to be digested by the mind, by the subconscious mind and the conscious mind. Um, I think some of it depends on perspective. Right now, we don't know where we are in the story, and certainly right after it, Miranda, uh, uh, Porter didn't either, right? Was it going to come back? You know, was 1922 going to see a resurgence of it, right? So, so I think that, that you need to sort of know where you are in the arc of the story before you can write about it. And, and I think that that was true for Porter. I think also, and this was true for a lot of writers, they, they had a hard time. The war was what seemed important, and it was difficult, and it even felt disloyal for a lot of writers to write about a pandemic when the war was was so fresh. Um, uh, there's a lot of reasons for it, but I think that that's, those are a few of them in terms of the delay. We see it a lot with art that, that, uh, that there needs to be a sort of seed time before it emerges. Well, Nancy, you were talking about how um, the disease was, you know, forgotten and very quickly, and that's consistent with this deferment in, in dealing with it in literature. How do you think about this concept of putting that under the rug and forgetting about it moving ahead uh, with the de- delay, Porter's personal delay, and maybe other aspects of literature not getting into the subject? 
No, I think it's a really interesting point that it does take some time to process, especially as, as Elizabeth suggested, I think, for art. Um, one of the things that's so interesting here, and actually I want to ask Elizabeth, a, I've got a question that's sort of pushing at me, which is this question about uncertainty, which is, is just what you were saying, Elizabeth, about part of what they're dealing with in the aftermath is they don't know, they don't know when it's over, right? It's not like a war where you sign an armistice. Did you have the sense, Elizabeth, that, that, that uncertainty is one really important piece of this experience. I kept thinking about each thing you were saying, like reality is shifting so fast, and part of that is this uncertainty about what is to come, the suffering of the body, you don't know when it will end, the contagion, I mean, again and again. Is uncertainty an important piece of what Porter also helps us understand? Absolutely, right, that that's, and the, and the, pain of that right the 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 pain of that uncertainty and the anxiety and the stress that it causes which really sort of brings us full circle back around to to barbara right like sort of the like what is it that we can control but i think that's also it kind of it weaves its way into the forgetting in that some of the literature that i discuss sort of encodes the pandemic in a way that represents the uncertainty, right, and represents the way it it lived on and kind of embodies and in subterraneously, uh, and um, and and that becomes means that it's hard to see, but it also captures the way that it was hard to see, right? It, it if that makes sense. What seems peculiar about the the novella is in the beginning where she, the the protagonist is. Uh, is confused. She's like hallucinogenic. She's she doesn't really understand what's going on around her. There's this sense of questioning the very reality of of what's going on. It, it reminds me of some of Virginia Woolf's work, for example, just the the absolute confusion of like what's real and what's fake. Um, and we've heard from others who've had COVID that they dream poorly, that the the high temperatures result in a lot of confusion, that their mind is playing games with them. Is there something about you know this sort of disease that um, where she, do you think that Porter had remember what she remembered most from her experience in her high fevers was this hallucinogenic effect, and that's kind of like almost the core of the piece? Yes, um, I think that that's I think that's exactly right, and 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 I think it it overlaps with with Virginia Woolf's work. Um, she she caught the flu um, with T. S. Eliot's work with uh, W. B. Yeats's work. Um, this sort of sense of a delirium and a dreamlike landscape and confusion and all of these fragments and that you can't quite put it all together, all speaking to memories and experiences of fever and delirium um, that, I mean, you have, you have half a billion people um, catching the flu. I mean, so that that means that this experience is hugely widespread, and um, and so I think Porter's drawing right on that, and then asking her reader to be plunged in immediately. So when my students read Pale Horse, Pale Rider, and they start that confusing sort of dreamlike landscape that makes no sense at the at the beginning, yeah. you know, Porter is asking the readers to be like, yeah, you think it makes no sense? Yeah, right on. That's exactly it. Um, that's that's um, That was the experience. You know, um, it takes her 20 years, and in that 20-year period, a second world war starts. So she's writing this just at the, about the time when, you know, the Germans invade Poland in 1939. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That being said, the also 1939 was the release of Gone with the Wind, and um, Gone with the Wind had was the most popular novel. Uh, it was you know top of the um, bestseller list, 1936, 1937. This is the number one film in the country, uh, and that's a story of another woman uh, in the context of uh, another war going on around her. How do you think about Gone with the Wind and and pay horsepower rider. Is that something you've thought about at all as part of the, your interwar year thoughts on literature? I mean, I think that, I mean, I think I probably earn a lot of enemies here, but, uh, but Gone with the Wind is a deeply problematic novel in a whole range of ways, um, and, and certainly, especially racially. Um, and I think that it, it allowed a kind of, I think it's, it's really popular in that it allows a kind of fantasy of, uh, and, uh, of, a, of, a, of a narrative that sort of, a, a sort of myth that you can sort of place over this incredibly difficult period of history um, and tell it as this, um, as this story of, of, of someone experiencing difficulties, but then sort of, you know, pledging to, to triumph at, at the end, um, but a much more kind of simplistic view of the, of the world. And, and I think that, you know, Porter's story would run somewhat counter um, to that and counter to a narrative of, of war that would be um, simplifying. Um, that is, but I haven't, I haven't really put them in, into, into... No problem. Let me try a different tack. So another thing that distinguishes COVID and um, the, the flu of 1918 was the, the flu of 19 was most deadly to the 18 to 25-year-old cohort, uh, where in the current uh, experience, it's mostly deadly to people uh, who are elderly and with comorbidities. Uh, it, the first one, the 19 flu, killed the healthy, um, and this disease kills the sick. How do we think about that in terms of um, why maybe the Porter's view was why it seems so unfair? Here were, here were these young people ready to start their lives, fully energetic. Adam comes across the, protagonist, the male protagonist in this story as full of life and full of strength, worried about bullets, not so much worried about disease or physical problems away from the a bullet. Uh, how do you think about strength being a weakness? I think it was one of the real haunting qualities of um, of nineteen eighteen, and I think though, I mean, I think that it's key to remember that at the time, I mean, Adam does seem incredibly healthy, but they also know that his body represents a kind of dead body, right? That 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 young men of precisely this age group were dying in unbelievably high numbers, right? So that the pandemic didn't change really the, it changed the gender. Um, of who was dying, um, but not the not the age group, um, and uh, and so I think that that it, it 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 meant that it seemed like this. I mean, some people felt like the pandemic was some sort of sort of gender equalizer that all these young men were dying. So now we had a pandemic that was going to kill all these young women in the same um, in the same age group. Um, but I think one of the dangers here between then and now is. 
to borrow a term from Judith Butler, um, grievability, right? That this, that this, this sort of insidious sense that some deaths are more grievable, right? And this can go along racial lines. Um, it can go along economic lines. Um, and, uh, and we see this in, 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 uh, in some of Chris's work, right? But that the, that this that this notion that somehow it's worse that because they're young people right or it's better because it's elderly people now and and sick people that that this notion that there is some way that we could grieve that 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 deaths are, are uh, can be grieved differently depending on the category i think is one of those things that we need to really work on and and correct right to to think of whole categories of people as as less grievable is uh, is something that is uh, that is that is troubling right troubling then um, troubling now and did you um, one of the as- other strange aspects of the short story is her grief towards Adam um, it's it's a little bizarre in some ways it's not there is no immediate grief and it just seems to be sort of a, a long-term haunting grief what, what do you make of, of her feelings about the process, and does it reflect maybe her own, the, the, uh, the author's own feelings of grief towards her, the loss of her loved one? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, it's complicated because the biographical details of the story are, do not match up to Porter's uh, own experiences, um, though the, the, her, she did nearly die of the virus. Adams, uh, I, I know some accounts say that he's a real figure, but he's, he seems to be imaginary. Um, but this grief, I think, I think that she captures at the end of that story a kind of the numbness, right? The kind of the, the shock and the numbness and the silence and the loss part of grief, that sort of shell shock for anyone who's lost a loved one, right, knows that sort of sense of being simply unmoored and stuck in a kind of void of, of, of silence, that kind of vertigo of it. And I think at the end of the story, she has that kind of numbness and shock and has to figure out, you know, how to completely live her life differently. So, so I think that at the end of th- that's, that's, it's, it feels like shell shock to me um, at, the, uh, at the end of the story, sort of how after a war and a pandemic can you, can you go on in the face of that kind of loss. All right, switching to Nancy now. Um, as you think about 1918 and the similarities, one of the first things you mentioned was um, sort of like the confusion as to what's really going on. I think there's, we clearly had confusion here, um, but I think there was also confusion uh, in 1918 as to uh, what was the disease, who was it killing, how can we um, cure it, how do we minimize its damage. Um, you know, we talked about there's, there's been some substantial progress in public health since, but I think there's always that initial outset where there's absolute confusion about whether you call it preparedness or just the, what we do in terms of the health care for it. How do we resolve it? How do we treat it? How do we protect ourselves? You know, I think that's absolutely true, that that's always going to be the case. When you have a novel virus arrive, 
I mean, we don't know what it is, literally. Um, there's a significant difference, though, in the situation that they faced in 1918 and what we faced in 2020. Well, there's a couple. The two I want to pinpoint is, one, we have the evidence from 1918 in terms of what does and doesn't work. Right? We have a great deal of information that tells us even until we know exactly what we have on our hands, we may not know exactly who it's going to kill. We may not know how long it's going to be with us. We don't know how long a vaccine will take. But we do know that social distancing works. Fairly quickly, they're able to do the research that shows that masking works. We know that quarantining works. We have a great body of evidence based on the experience of 1918 uh, that simply wasn't employed very effectively this time around, I'm afraid. Uh, And the other thing is we have the huge advantage, again, of our technology being in a really different place. So, again, even though we have a lot of questions, and and Lord knows, I'm glad I wasn't in in the circumstance of trying to make the decisions in those early weeks, whether it is, you know, whether to close schools or whether to require the economy to to slow um, by closing things down. I mean, I understand these are terribly difficult decisions to make, but we're in a much better place for making them because we can see the virus. It was quickly identified. Um, They began Uh work on a vaccine almost immediately. We understand the possibilities of flattening the curve. We have ventilators and antibiotics to deal with the really critically ill that put us in a really different place. So even as I perhaps was a little critical of the folks in 1918, um, I recognize how little they knew, and also they had far fewer resources to try to make sense of their circumstances, again, partly because of technology and partly because they had not they did not have the, the evidence of a, of a modern pandemic, which we in 2020, you know, frankly do have. You know, in, in your book, you have a table of death rates in various, in the top American cities. Um, and there was some variance with Philadelphia, as you mentioned, being very high and maybe Milwaukee being relatively low. But um, I think if we were to think about this statistically, um, you know, I would always expect some cities to have higher death rates than others just by pure randomness. Why do you um, place such trust in this narrative that we've created about this Liberty Loan Drive as being a critical variable um, to, that harmed Philadelphia? Um, one of the things that we've learned, at least from our current experience, is that being outside isn't that uh, a super-spreading type of event. Right. Um, why do you feel like the narrative that we created with our limited scientific understandings at the time really has relevance today? Well, because those events, when you look at them, though, we, we do know that outside is better, but outside is even better if you're wearing masks and if you're six feet apart and not kissing each other because you're excited about the armistice. So, again, mm-hmm. these were very particular. You know, so I'm thinking not so much of the, you're right, I'll go to the Liberty Loan Parade in a second, but another major problem was the armistice and the celebrations that occurred around it. And these large public gatherings of thousands of people being intimately connected with, another, with one another in terms of, you know, embracing and, and kissing, that's just not it's not a good idea. Uh, and in terms of the Liberty Loans, again, it's not necessarily going to be the case everywhere, but it certainly does bear out um, in terms of looking at, at when communities did certain things and when they had these huge upsurge. Perhaps it was coincidence that it was at the time of the Liberty Loan Parade, and yet places that chose not to have those major gatherings. So Seattle, for instance, forgoes lifting its social distancing until the day after the armistice, and Seattle does have much lower statistics. So again, the reason we can sort of look at those things also is because experts have done this work and they've, they've broken down those statistics. People at the University of Michigan's um, uh, Social History of Medicine Center alongside people from the CDC have done extensive 
extensive research on the advocacy or the uh, excuse me the um, the efficacy of non pharmaceutical interventions those things that aren't medicine but that we can each do social distancing masking quarantining etc and it's very clear that those cities that impose restrictions early maintain them for the longest period of time reimpose them as necessary again and again and again have lower rates than those those communities that did not so again it's not just it can seem like we're just picking a couple of obvious examples and I, I agree poor Philadelphia we've all heard too much about poor old Philadelphia they were early yeah. in the pandemic how could they have known they couldn't have known perhaps you know and so I think we're far too um, far too it reminded me of New York City in the first few weeks of this epidemic What's that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, there's just really good statistical evidence that's not just a couple of examples. We're talking about hundreds of examples, thousands of examples where this can be borne out and has been researched closely by the experts in, in epidemiology uh, and in, in social history. Uh, so that's why I go to those narratives, because it's very clear that um, this was a very, very contagious virus. Not the same virus, of course, of course as COVID-19. Another thing to note is that this is far more infectious. So, you know, what might not cause an infection in 2020 could have caused infection in 1918. And remember, as Elizabeth pointed out, a third of people on the globe, 500 million people were infected with this. Rick Banks, you want to take this in a different direction? Well, so let's uh, move on to Rob Sampson and uh, uh, Chris Patterson. Uh, this is a great uh, discussion about the pandemic, by the way. Uh, but l let's start with Rob Sampson. So, Rob, you, you have a, a wonderful analysis, uh, which is a, a story, if you will, about how the decline in informal social control has resulted due to a, a, di uh, a, a, a diminishment of cohesion and a lack of trust in poor uh, neighborhoods in Chicago. And so, and then you also talked about social isolation, uh, and in particular, uh, isolation in terms of, you know, where people go and then who comes to see them. So what I'm wondering about is the connection between the uh, informal social control, uh, lack of collective efficacy story on the one hand, and the social isolation story on the other. Could you say more about how social isolation specifically relates to weakened uh, social bonds and collective efficacy, and in particular, how travel uh, to and from relates to diminished social efficacy or, or, or diminished collective efficacy? Yeah, it's a good question and something I've been thinking about. So the idea of the mobility-based disadvantaged is, as you know, that it's really about the different places that people travel. And I think what's important from from the data that we're seeing is that it's incredibly structured, socially structured, such that these different patterns of segregation are reproduced. We know from prior research on neighborhoods, let's say just internal neighborhood relations, that racial segregation or residential racial segregation combined with concentrated poverty is, is a very you know, pernicious uh, characteristic that's related to any number of things such as higher crime, worse health. In other words, general well-being is reduced in those kinds of neighborhoods. And so I, th I think one way to conceptualize it is it's sort of a layering of disadvantage. It goes beyond. It's like it's almost like piling on, right? There, think about it first as double disadvantage, right? So you have a poor neighborhood. And then the, the neighborhood is visited disproportionately by other um, poor individuals. Well, 
that means then that there's less contact with people from higher social status, which may mean access to resources that may uh, bear on the governance of the neighborhood. And then you add to that the um, visitation of residents only to other poor neighborhoods. Or you could just flip it around, by the way, and, and think about it in terms of concentrated affluence or almost opportunity hoarding. We shouldn't just focus in on the poor. Our data show that there are neighborhoods where um, that are very well uh, to do, very upper class, and their residents are socially isolated themselves. They don't visit uh, any other neighborhoods. I'm, you know, I'm painting this in, in oversimplified terms so you get the general idea, but the visitation patterns are disproportionately to other well-to-do neighborhoods, and only people from other well-to-do neighborhoods are visiting them. So it's happening across the spectrum. That's a form of inequality that when resources um, like that tend to be concentrated, I think it leads to a separation or a mindset that reduces collective efficacy and our interdependence. Because one of the basic ideas behind um, social control theory and collective efficacy theory has to do with interdependence. And in this sense, what you're seeing is almost a hardening of, of the boundaries by race and class, which then feeds into um, a, a sense of more cynicism among residents and I think perhaps pessimism. And, and in, why should I get involved in local organizations? Um, it's almost I have a question, this is Larry, um, about public policy as it relates to this problem. Um, one of the classic 1960s sociology analysis was of uh, an Italian slum in Boston where public officials decided that maybe what we should do is just basically blow it up you know, knock down that slum and encourage the people that lived in that slum to live elsewhere. And what Gans does, in, in the, as he analyzes the situation, he finds that, uh, in fact, the slum was actually a, a relatively productive area and that blowing up that slum actually did tremendous harm. So I guess my question is, is um, to the extent that some neighborhoods um, appear to be not so successful, how how right are we about that, and is blowing up those neighborhoods necessarily the solution? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Gans's book is, is brilliant, as was a, an earlier book, Street Corner Society by William F. White, studying the north end of Boston, again, a Boston study, making a somewhat similar argument in that the neighborhood is viewed as disorganized, but in fact, even in the north end and in Gans's west end of Boston, there were tight-knit um, social ties and it was indeed a form of, of cohesion. That's actually part of my argument that it's not just those kinds of ties. We also have to think about the sense in which residents are engaging in actions that um, bring resources and go beyond just those, those tight-knit social ties. So I, mean, I agree on the principle that just because the neighborhood is poor and, and seemingly disorganized, the policy responses, even in the present, moving to opportunity is a well-known example of, of a similar philosophy, which is, well, these neighborhoods are poor. Uh, they almost viewed William Julius, Julius Wilson's theory of social isolation as it, meaning that we should 
blow up these you know public housing projects and disperse people and i don't i don't agree with that i think what has happened is that in part the reason for the lower collective efficacy is related to external perceptions and actions with regard to those neighborhoods and that's related to this idea of triple disadvantage. People do not visit these neighborhoods. When I was in Chicago doing my research, it was almost like Roosevelt Road, those of listeners who know the city, beneath or below that was kind of this no man's land. People, when I taught classes, uh, a lot of students who, let's say, had come from the north side or north suburbs of Chicago had never visited the south side of Chicago. That's that's incredible, Um, meaning that intergroup ties, which are essential for the social integration of society are not established. So the the health, I think, of, of a community with respect to uh, this sort of social, um, I really think of it as the social um, sustenance and the social organization of a community is related to both the sorts of ties that exist among neighbors, but also the community organizations the expectations of neighbors and the external kinds of resources, the kinds of connections that are produced. So I I view it in in part as an issue of urban governance. And to the extent that people are just shrinking more and more into their own communities and and hunkering down in the sense of isolation, the worse off we're going to be. And I worry a bit about the, the pandemic, of course, because... Um, to the extent that travel has been constrained, this will interact to make these patterns potentially worse. So that that's a possibly pessimistic uh, interpretation. One other okay, this, aspect. Is, this is Rick Banks. Oh, no, let's 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 bring Chris Patterson in. This Chris. So uh, Rob Sampson has has given a, a story here about the, the origins of violence in Chicago in particular, but it's more generalizable as well, in which the decline in collective efficacy and the, and the lack of community trust and cohesion are central factors. Uh, does that characterization of the problem ring true to you based on what you've seen? Uh, yes. And, you know, from a bird's eye view, I had a life, I grew up, you know, with a life that mirrored so many of the young people who are struggling right now. And, you know, for, you know, in communities like Austin, like in in the communities we serve, this sense of hopelessness and this idea that everyone dreams big in their mind and particularly in their heart. And when people don't have an opportunity to actually do that, um, it's a stifling feeling. It's a stifling feeling to the point where, you know, you know, when resources are dried up, when you you just get the sense that no one cares, especially, um, you know, and I and I appreciate, you know, his uh, his analogy, right? Getting out of the neighborhood, when you have an opportunity to kind of expand out the side of the community you live in, if you're a young African American man, in a lot of cases, not all cases, then you start to see all this the beautiful uh, components of what makes Chicago beautiful, but you realize it doesn't exist in your own community. Um, it's hard to come back and, and, and still have that optimistic viewpoint of like what you'll achieve in life. It's hard to really dream and hope. And so you just really get kind of into this, this, this hole where you're surviving, right? And surviving looks unfortunately like how you've seen it out your front window as opposed to, um, you know, the TV, TV, the, the, and the analogies of like what success looks like on TV. 
Right. But so now for, for Chris and, and Rob, then, um, given that we know there's a, a, a multiplicity of factors here, um, how do we intervene? Uh, where, was there, is there a point where we can get some leverage on the system and, and make things better? I, I think so. This is Chris again. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. I can no, come back. I was just going to ask you a question, Chris, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I do think we're in, we're in, a, we're in a unique opportunity that with chaos comes an opportunity, right? And we are definitely, who can argue the fact that we're not in a chaos, chaotic moment? Um, you know, someone spoke about two epidemics earlier, and I think about that primarily with the work that I do, the epidemic of COVID-19, but then also the epidemic of kind of like being black in America, right, which has always been an issue for African-American people. So when, now that everyone else has kind of like been brought up to speed about injustices, right? Because partly in part because of social media and this idea that we can share information in a split second, now that everyone else is up to speed around where we're at um, as a people, I think we have an opportunity to change the conditions that put people on the street corners to sell loose cigarettes and get choked out and say, I can't breathe, you know, create real economic situations where people can get employment, fair housing, um, not not targeted for mass incarceration appeal, you know, and other, and, and other facets. So, yeah, I think we're in the right moment. I think that it's going to require uh, folks that are on this phone to partner up. I think it's going to require, it, you know, what what's really frustrating about this work is that there's so many people doing the work, um, and we're not all on the same page. And in fact, sometimes we don't even know each other. But I can tell you on the other side of the argument, the NRA – um, and other folks who kind of stand against the, the changes that we want to see, it feels like they're very much aligned, right? And so, you know, my, my hope and optimism is that, you know, calls like this, gatherings like this, bring like-minded people together. Yeah, Chris, what I was going to say was, first of all, I loved your description of the organization and, and, and what it does in Chicago, particularly the idea of residents calling community organization or some other entity, let's say, when you know, kids are hanging out, making trouble in the corner, graffiti, whatever, instead of the police. I think that's just yeah. a fantastic idea, which connects directly, obviously, to the idea of, of collective efficacy. And so I think that that's uh, something really to think about. And I was going to ask you, you know, if we have any evidence on whether that works. My own read of a lot of the community-based interventions um, is that they've never really been funded uh, to the extent that, or at least compared to other types of interventions. I mean, the amount of money put into the police is astronomical, right? Historically, right. compared to uh, you know piddly um, interventions with regard to, to community organizations, and they're not durable. And then we do a little you know randomized control trial, and we see that it well it doesn't have great effects. Well, why would it? Um, yeah. In those conditions, so. I do think we're in a moment where people are rethinking uh, approaches, um, bolder approaches, and I guess w what I think is potentially important are these interventions that think creatively about community-based organizations. And there is evidence, by the way, that the great uh, crime decline, as it's been called in the United States, the, there's plausible evidence that mm -hmm. one of the explanations, not the only one, but one of the explanations for that was the response of community organizations fighting back against crime. In other words, 
it's not the case that even in poor neighborhoods that are facing crime problems that, you know, the people don't care. That's why I mentioned the our attitudes um, survey that, you know, you look at poor uh, comparisons to middle income or African American compared to black, uh, to Hispanic compared to white. Everybody um, basically thinks the same way, low tolerance of crime. Um, and the the ability, though, to, to fight back, it, it's hard to do that alone. But in poor, yeah. high-crime neighborhoods that had community-based uh, organizations, they saw um, a, a greater reduction in crime. So I, I like this idea of maybe seeing community organizations as sort of a conduit instead of the police. And, of course, it raises the question of, you know, it's probably a third rail kind of question, but... <laughs> You know, people are talking about defunding the police. What does that mean? Is there a way to you know, reconceptualize a lot of what the police now provide and shifting that? I think that's what people are talking about at a very broad yeah. level um, in the community. And I think that that's a tough, yeah, it's really hard to do. Um, but there is a lot of theory and there's a lot of research I think could guide those kinds of conversations. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Robert. And, you know, Chris hey, here again. Can I jump so, in? This so, is Susan. Yeah. Can I jump in on this question? Susan, go ahead. Susan, please jump in. You, you, you were next up. Well, good. My timing's excellent, right? Uh, so, so I want to pick up on this discussion between Robert and Chris a bit. Um, it, a lot of terrific points. I love Robert's attention to the neighborhood and the idea of the neighborhood being in the organizing principle. And I'm, you know, how can I not love the work that Chris is doing uh, with this Institute for Nonviolence? Um, it is on the ground work and it's critically important. But I want to go back to two things, one that Robert said and one that um, Chris said. The first of these, uh, Robert, uh, sorry, Chris was talking early on in his talk, why was the gun in the young man's hand? So instead of focusing on the gun, figure out why that guy, that young man was out on the street, why he had a gun and what, what's going on there. And I think that's critical because one of the things uh, we, we need to be doing and we are doing at uh, Party Ran, the grad school here, is we need to stop taking this traditional academic narrow focus. It's not a crime issue or a homeless issue or an education issue. These are complex problems and they function in what we call complex adaptive systems. So you have to look at the system as a whole and understand it from end to end if you expect to have any effectiveness in addressing these issues. And I think that's what Chris was getting at. Um, the other thing, talking about um, RCTs, you know, so uh, random controlled trials uh, that uh, Rob was mentioning, I think it, it illustrates the same problem, uh, this idea we measure effects in very narrow areas uh, as opposed to looking at the effects. So you may have a policy or a program that may have a minimal change in, in whether or not uh, a specific crime level, but may have a very positive effect in terms of education or other quality of life, but just across the system in different ways. Or, uh, for example, in pride, uh, pride in a community. And you see this in the discussion of food deserts and the effect of putting grocery stores in so-called food deserts. It doesn't change uh, some of the food security aspects, but in fact, it does bring great pride to the community, even though that's not what was being measured. The other point I want to highlight, and this talks about uh, Rob and Chris saying we need a new approach to how we work, 
uh, within uh, community-based, the idea of a community-based intervention. I think even that language is problematic because it indicates parachuting in from the outside to run an experiment, as opposed to making a long-term uh, commitment to a community, engaging the community in what are the problems, what are the priorities, but most of all, what are the potential solutions. Um, these communities, they understand their environment better than anyone from a think tank or a university will. And they, they are smart. There's a lot of talent there. They're smart people, and they have ideas on how we could actually go about addressing some of these issues. So I think this goes to the sort of radically uh, different approach to public policy and uh, policy interventions. And again, goes back to my main theme uh, for today of democratizing. We've got to have these other voices in. We've got to make long-term commitments to these communities. Uh, and I think until we start doing that, we're not going to see real effects. We're just going to keep pouring money, good money after bad, as Rob was saying. Yeah, just two quick points on that. This is Rob Sampson again. That, um, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, that's exactly how collective efficacy theory conceptualizes things. And I would mm -hmm. say that if you go back to the origins even of community policing, that was the idea. I think what happened was it got hijacked. It got hijacked yeah. by other ideas like stop, question, and frisk and aggressive interventions by the police in the community. That wasn't what the idea was. It was having residents identify what the problems were and finding common solutions. So I'm not saying, you know, we need to go back to community policing um, necessarily, but I do think that some of the, the principles um, underlying it got, uh, you know, there was a huge detour in pretty much the Yeah, opposite. they were hijacked. So exactly, they were hijacked. So we, we do need to reconceptualize that. I think it's happening, and I think um, I'm actually pretty optimistic on <laughs> a couple uh, grounds. One is, you know, crime is still, relatively speaking, lower than it was in the you know, when things went to hell in the 1990s. And I think people recognize and are, you know, there is a reckoning that things have to change. The second point um, has to do with this idea of, you know, things go together. In my book, I talk about that. These are correlated adversities. You can't just single one out. In fact, my maps of Chicago and other cities of violence, concentrated advantage, triple disadvantage, if you overlay COVID on that, you know, same neighborhoods. Um, other forms of health, infant mortality, but this is not a new phenomenon. You go back to the, you know, pretty much any decade since we've been collecting, not we meaning my team, but scholars, quantitative data, and neighborhoods going back to the um, 19th century, um, the same patterns hold time after time. And again, some of the classic studies, um, the Bois study in Philadelphia, Black Metropolis, um, Drake and Kate in 1945 in Chicago, showing infant mortality and, and health and juvenile delinquency in the same neighborhood. So this idea that we can just pick out one thing, do uh, you know, an experiment to, to test that is a misreading of the scientific evidence of how these things are socially and spatially organized. Yeah. I have a question for Chris. It's Larry. Um, We've heard that the number of shootings in Chicago is uh, has soared in the last couple of months. Um, what's happening on the ground? Who who's shooting who and why? And yeah, yeah, thank you uh, for that. So I had so let me talk a little bit about also Robert's question. So I and then I'll hit 
um, like why the increase or, you know, some of my theories on why the increase in, in violence in places like Chicago. So, you know, I, I happen to be a historian of gang culture in Chicago, and I can look back on all the years and the creation of gangs in Chicago started with this idea that young black men and Latino men in the city of Chicago felt unsafe and they felt unsafe by um, white community members on the outskirts. And they also felt unsafe by uh, Chicago police department. So they felt like they had to police their own community. Obviously that has gone away um, and things went sideways for a variety of reasons. But the idea of community policing, or protecting your own community is nothing new and it's not unique to an organization like the Institute for Nonviolence. There was a time, and, you know, coworkers and, you know, myself, we often talk about the times when your neighbor would hold you accountable, right? Take you to your mother, take you to the father, and kind of spill the beans on whatever you may have done that day. Like, we're trying to restore that. So this idea of community policing is not new. What it is is that we've gotten away from this, right? And the Martin Luther King, one of the genius of the nonviolence, Kingian principles is building the beloved community, right? In order for us to do our job well, being uh, ambassadors of peace, ambassadors of Kingian nonviolence, we have to push this narrative that we have a place in preventing issues in the community. One of the unique things that the 15th district, which is a police district here in Chicago, has done is... Um, we do breakfast meetings with businesses and I've, you know, I bear witness, right? even law enforcement in the 15th district has said, listen, if you've got an issue at your gas station or in front of your business, guys are congregating, call the Institute. Don't call us, especially, you know, cause a lot of that time it's not criminal, right? It's just, it, it just feels like, like, like a menace. We've got a relationship with those guys who are most likely doing the hanging out. Right. And so if we can kind of talk to them before law enforcement comes with this contentious relationship that already exists, then we can kind of step foot and uh, support. Right. And so um, we, we've got calls all the time where where, you know, um, elderly residents of the community may call us and say, hey, listen, I got this person. You know, they, they won't stop yelling out in front of my house, and we've come, and we've kind of remedied that and helped them insist with that. Right. And so we and we also know our limits as well. Right. And so what we're very good at is uh, preventing issues on the front end. You know, and we 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 afford space for law enforcement to then, you know, enforce laws. Right. The way that it's designed. But we definitely know that the work that we do can be more can be used more. Right. And so you think about policy, the thing about the street outreach component that I was thinking about the the. And I forgot the, the speaker's name. I apologize, but she was talking about root cause and policy and the idea that so much of, you know, for the work that we do on a day in and day out, particularly if you're working in like Austin or West Garfield Park where the shooting volumes are so high, it feels like a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And it almost feels like, wait a minute, we're not fixing the issues that cause this stuff to happen. We're just chasing our tail, right? So the downside to any of this, though, because I've, I've kind of cut my teeth in doing community organizing, is that policy work is long-term thinking, long-term vision. So that may take one year, two years, three years down the line. People need the right now help. And so like the Institute for Nonviolence, we're doing the right now help, and we're also thinking about the one year, two year, and three year down the line policy work that needs to happen. The idea, we, you know, the executive director, Tenny Gross, and I talk about it all the time, is figuring out like, how does the community put us out of work? And that is like the ultimate goal, where community members are able to impart nonviolence to one another, learn it through us, and then, you know, move forward. So we think about the shootings in 2020. It is not unique to Chicago. 
Um, and it doesn't make it better, and it doesn't make it feel good either, right, when, especially when we're seeing over the weekend 50 people shot, 12 people killed, uh, all over the world, in fact. Um, but let's stick to the United States. New York and Los Angeles were both under 300 murders for years, and now both of those um, places are, like, skyrocketing in violence. Domestic violence has gone up in an astronomical number. Prescription drug medication has gone up astronomically and that you can't even track illicit drugs. So this idea that people are anxious, people are hurting. And now in a time where, when an economic time when they can't even find jobs and people who we work with are more likely to have felony records, for instance, right? Because we're thinking we're finding those people who are trapped in cycles of violence. Now we're in a situation where 80% of our participants we were working with were categorically homeless and that's pre COVID. Right? And so now we've got a homeless population of people who are driving violence, people with felony records, no one's hiring, the, anxi- the anxiety of what COVID brings, right? So people even on a square footing are feeling anxious about this. What does that do for a person who has no strong footing? Drug use, the, the sense of hopelessness that I sometimes see when I'm in the community working and, and you know, in the neighborhood I live, is, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch that. Right. Um, And so as you think about like why violence is rising, I would say almost why not? And it almost makes sense. Right. So one of the the issues of us, you know, the Institute for Nonviolence is imparting different communication levels. Violence is a level of communication that young people are using. And they know that when they have a conflict with one another, they know that they can use violence and resolve it. That's their way of speaking. What we want to do is we want to give them different tools. We want to show them conflict mediation. We want to show them training. But if that's all they know until they've been impacted by an organization such as ours, then they will continue to speak that language to one another. And mothers are burying children. Thank you. Chris, that was wonderful. Thank you. This is Rick. Uh, I, I want to go back to um, Barbara, though. I want to bring her into this conversation. Uh, so, Barbara, you you uh, began this conversation with some very concrete and very helpful suggestions. I wrote down all of them, uh, and we'll be uh, reading your book eagerly uh, to gain some more insight. But the, but the problem that I'm wondering about is whether, because many of us have heard uh, about how to get organized and have read books about how to get organized. Some of us may even have a whole shelf full of books on how to get organized, uh, but somehow that doesn't do it. So do you have any sense of or any thoughts about uh, psychological or emotional impediments that may block people uh, from implementing your systems and sticking to them over time uh, rather than you know implementing and then falling off and implementing again and then falling off? Any, any thoughts on that, on the, on the emotional uh, or psychological uh, inclinations that may hold us back? Sure. So I think for many, many people, the most difficult part is just starting, and there's this paralysis. And if you're not able to call somebody like me who can come in and break that paralysis by being there physically, the way to do it is to put it in your calendar as if you do have an appointment with somebody to do it, and keep that appointment as if it were an important important job interview or a doctor's appointment, and if you need to enlist a friend. And I think that the mistake that many people make is that they don't don't, um, a lot enough time initially, right? So you can't just spend a half an hour and, and then you get half done and then you wonder why you can't maintain it. 
um, you have to really give it an hour, two hours, and actually finish an area, purge, organize, design the space, and then label it. And the labeling is really the key thing in terms of maintenance. And um, I will say that when you get into the psychology of, of why people keep things and why they don't keep things, um, it, 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 people are driven by different things. And some, one of the, the comments I made um, when I was speaking earlier was about um, don't hold on to something out of guilt or that um, other people's uh, memories are not your responsibility. And sometimes people are holding on to something because, for example, it was their great Aunt Mary's tray. And it's been passed down and passed down. But if you really knew the truth, Aunt Mary hated that tray. And somebody got it for her to gift, and they bought it at a flea market. And it wasn't even a valuable thing. But it's because it's been passed down and passed down, it gets this aura of, you know, we must save it, even though it's not important at all. So there, there are psychological reasons that hold some people back that are, you know, when you talk about hoarding. But generally, for most people, it's just a momentary paralysis in terms of getting started. And okay. Barbara, going back to my introduction to you is that we're spending so much more time at home than ever. And, you know, the home was had a, an original design plan as, I don't know, a, a safe place of sanctuary after work and not a place where we do work, for example, um, or a place where we entertain others versus entertaining ourselves. Um, in the context of these new demands, how do we restructure our homes to fit these new requirements? I actually loved the way you phrased that in the introduction, but, um, you know, our homes now have to do double duty, and every space is a multifunctional space. So it used to be in people's homes, the kitchen was really the only room that was multifunction. You know, you it was a place where you ate, and maybe your kids did their homework, and maybe you also watched TV there, but now almost every room is like that, and when you set up your home, you, you have to... First of all, eliminate all of the clutter. And I think in the early parts of, like in the spring when we were thinking that it was a very temporary situation, now we're going to work at home for a little while, or, you know, we're going to, we're going to get our kids through school just, it's another month or so. Well, now the reality has set in that this is, this is more of a permanent situation, and these temporary solutions aren't working. So the key is really being flexible, but also really removing all of the extraneous things because, as I quoted these studies that talk about how clutter really does cause anxiety and decreases your productivity and decreases, uh, you know, and increases your stress levels, you need to eliminate all of that so that you can make these multifunctional spaces work. And when you're sitting in an area that you used to read a book at and now you're going to be working at, you have to somehow signal to your mind and your body that it's time to work and not time to play. And the only way to do that is to, you know, get rid of the extraneous things and to set routines for yourself um, so that you can be effective in, in working in those spaces. Okay. Um, before um, We're going to go in a few minutes to going around the room asking for everyone's note of optimism. Uh, but before we do so, I want to just ask one last question uh, to Rob Sampson um, about neighborhoods. And when I read your book, Chicago, one of the interesting aspects is that how little neighborhoods change over time, that something that has been poor uh, and problematic in, in terms of all the social criteria of being a problem uh, remains so sometimes for generations. 
um, you know, uh, in reading um, a book on the slums of, of Chicago in 1920, um, the relevant slum that... Uh, Zorba talks about is a, a slum on Huron Street um, near Wells. And my apartment in Chicago is on Huron and Rush. So I, I live very, very close to this uh, 1920s slum. At the time, it was an Italian slum, um, and the whole community was from, I guess, was Sicilian. Um, today, there are no Sicilians anywhere near that that area. Um, what I thought was humorous about the 1920 version was that there was an evangelical institute in the area called the Moody Bible Institute, and that the Moody Bible guys would come and try to persuade uh, in their evangelical um, doctrines to persuade the Sicilians to behave in, in a more moral fashion, and they, the Sicilians gave them, you know, the back of their hand. Um, the Moody Bible Institute is still in the exact same location, although the Italian uh, slum has left um, and the neighborhood has radically changed. Um, I'm just wondering how you think about long-term neighborhood effects, how um, even things that happened in 1920 can still influence the neighborhood 100 years later, and how um, the passage of time is important, the fact that the same people don't live there anymore, but some of the bad trends may continue. Yeah, I think that's right. One way to think about it is that neighborhood reputations and, and stigma, for example, is a, is a, quote, bad neighborhood, high-crime neighborhood, dangerous neighborhood, and so forth. Those are hard to shake, even when the objective reality has changed. That's in part why I raised the point about people's mental maps of Chicago and the idea of the South Side. You, know, you just don't go to the South Side. Um, many neighborhoods on the South Side are, are safe. So, Yes, I think that's that's one of the mechanisms by which neighborhood effects come about. And um, by the way, that uh, neighborhood you talked about um, was called Death Corner in the earlier part of um, the 20th century. And yes, it was high crime, but it, the groups differed. It was Italian um, at, at the time, and then became green um, area um, later on. I would say this, though. I mean, the idea is not that neighborhoods are static and don't change. Neighborhoods are constantly changing. It's that most are reproducing themselves socially. And so, you know, the Gold Coast and the slum, every city has that, right? The Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, there's always a rich neighborhood and there's always a poor neighborhood. They rarely switch places. Sometimes they do, and of course there's the whole concept of gentrification. We do see neighborhoods in Brooklyn, for example, in New York, there's been um, quite substantial change. But if you look at all neighborhoods in the United States, the tendency is for there to be a relative stability in the social position of that neighborhood in the larger hierarchy. I think that's the fundamental kind of social rule. There's always exceptions, of course, but the idea of neighborhood differentiation, in other words, doesn't change. But the the neighborhoods, um, you know, there's always movement, there's always it's change. But from a sociological perspective, what I care about is how that fits into the to the broader pattern and position of that neighborhood and in the wider social structure. And that's a very persistent phenomenon, and it is in most cities. You know, you talk about. Um I'll call it, you know, you're talking about people like me in the north side who very rarely, if ever, go to the south side, and Roosevelt Road being your, your key landmark. Um, 
you know, over the last 20 years, the area just south of Roosevelt Road has been gentrified and turned into a very interesting neighborhood. Um, you know, Northsiders have gone to try to explore those areas. Potentially their children will live in those communities. Um, and then we've also gone and explored Pilsen, and there's new Latin American communities that where, you know, there's dinner and music and interesting places to explore. Um, but one of the interesting aspects about COVID is that that exploration is finished. I mean, I haven't barely left my house in the last six months. Um, I haven't, you know, I know I, the thought of me going to the south side now would be like the last thing on my mind to go exploring. Um, but when we, when we end that exploration, when those norms of behavior change, how quickly will Northsiders want to go ahead and explore um, the south side once COVID disappears? And to the extent that there has been this escalation in violence, um, will we be more reticent to um, send our children to live on the south side in those new up-and-coming gentrified areas? And to what extent um, will this diminution in social intercourse between the north and south siders mean for our communities at large? Yeah, well, there probably won't be a rush, um, but you should go. (laughs) No, seriously, um, in the sense that I think what you do see is and it's very structured again, like the near south side, for example, the south loop pushed into and became gentrified. But areas further from the lake, further from the downtown areas and neighborhoods that are more historically characterized by the concentration of poverty and racial segregation, like Englewood um, or the site of the former Robert Taylor Holmes, has not really changed that much. In fact, it's a it's an empty field really where Robert Taylor Holmes once stood. If you look at Cabrini Green, it's close to the Gold Coast. Um, that's much more likely to gentrify. So again, very structured. But I agree that things were moving in a, a better direction, and the pandemic is an exogenous shock that has lots of um, negative effects. But hopefully, hopefully we will get over this, and, and I think that there has to be, you know, concerted attention, as we were talking about earlier, to some of these policies and investments, long-term investments in these communities that make them um, attractive and build the social con- social supports that they need. All right, this is, now we go to the part of the show where we end on a positive note, and I call on each person to say something that they're optimistic about. Susan, why don't I start with you? What are, what are you optimistic about? So I've not given up on America as a nation or an idea. I mean, it's not too late. Uh, we saw this with uh, calls for social justice uh, in more than 2,000 towns and uh, uh, towns and cities across the country that we could as we recognize the problems we face, we can actually still lead the world in coming up with solutions. Um, We see this in the uh, COVID-19 fighting the coronavirus. We can still learn. We can do a lot better as these new waves come in. It's going to take the right leadership and recognition of a national uh, effort to uh, manage this pandemic. And the last piece, I love these discussions about uh, engaging with communities, really partnering with communities so that we can start leveraging the talent that is in every one of our neighborhoods. And so there's a lot to be positive about. Chris, what about you? Yeah, I would say the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in principle six was the universe is on the side of justice. And I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that in communities coming together. Larger systems like CPD, for instance, adapting a community 
policing strategy, right? That's all pushes from the community. Calls like this, individuals, the calls to action across the nation to come together for racial equality. Now, even though the universe is on the side of justice, this may take us some time, but I do think we're on course for it. Right? And I appreciate everyone's hard work, their thoughts, um, but we can't let our foot off the gas, right? We have to keep going, and I think we're doing that. That's it. Rob, what about you? Yeah, picking up on that theme, um, I kind of agree, and I would point once again to the longer historical perspective. Things today, even though crime is up, as has been pointed out, it's nowhere near what it was like in late 80s and the crack cocaine epidemic or even the mid, early to mid-90s. There was over close to 1,000 murders in Chicago in 1992, 93, 94. So we are better off. The crime has declined, and there's estimates, strong evidence that something like well over 100,000 people are alive today that wouldn't otherwise be absent the crime drop. And the crime drop disproportionately benefited the poorest and African Americans the most, since those were the neighborhoods that suffered the highest rate. So that's a positive fact that has been, I think, um, somewhat overlooked. And then the other positive aspect, I would say, is that the recent protests over policing and the racial reckoning has opened the door to a space, I think, for innovative and bold criminal justice reform policies. I see this happening across the country, and um, that gives me hope. Thank you. Barbara, what about you? What are you optimistic about? I think that during this period of time, and, and there are all of these positive things about the community, but when we look inward to nuclear families and um, how people have spent a lot more time at home and this very hectic pace of life has slowed somewhat, I think that it's been very positive for the relationships with, between family members that have spent a lot of time together in somewhat of a way that's been unnatural to us for a long time and sort of gotten back to some of the simpler pleasures. Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, Nancy? I have two. One is in terms of the remembering of what we're going through right now. Um, there has been a massive movement nationwide um, among archivists and librarians and community organizers to, to collect the stories of everyone so that unlike 1918 when we have these huge silences in what we know, my hope is that we'll have a much better capacity to understand what has taken place and it will be a much more inclusive uh, memory than we had from 1918. And then I have to agree quickly with other panelists, uh, in particular uh, Chris and Robert, that I think what's going on among the young people right now, particularly in, in the context of Black Lives Matter, and what I see going on with my students today, students of color and also white students, their commitment uh, to moving the nation to a better place is so deep that every day they just give me such profound inspiration and courage. Thank you. Um, Elizabeth? So I will echo also the optimism I see um, based on the protests and based on the youth and, uh, and also just based on the work that I've heard today. I mean, uh, Susan's work and, and Barbara's work and Rob's work and Nancy's work and, and Chris's work, um, uh, especially and the, this, the, his Institute for Nonviolence. Um, all, of these, all of this work seems like things that will move us into a better future. Rick Banks, what about you? What are you optimistic about? 
fine. Try to blindside you. Yeah, you blindside me, man. You should go first. All <laughs> <laughs> right, man. That's, I'm, I'm the moderator. You're the whole host. So let's let's just put it out there. There are um, so many things to worry about uh, in our nation, and so many things that I worry about, uh, and I have a, another set of worries uh, in the last 24 hours or so. Uh, but I, I am heartened that, as this call demonstrates, people are beginning to understand the centrality of racial inequality and racial conflict in the American uh, story. Uh, and I think that's really uh, an essential starting point for any long-term change, to understand that the type of things we see in Chicago, um, they're not really uh, and they shouldn't be understood as limited to Chicago or limited to black communities or even as involving low-income communities. They're really really stories and problems about how we want to live together as a people uh, and how we want to solve some of the collective problems we have. So seeing that sense of consciousness and awareness change is enormously uh, inspiring to me, uh, and I only hope that it will bear fruit long-term. Thanks, Rick. All right. I just wanted to give a plug for our next week's show. Um, we're still we're still putting it together, uh, but we have four speakers so far. Um, we have Graham Allison, uh, who is a Harvard Kennedy School professor. He's going to talk about um, is there uh, going to be a war between the United States and China. Uh, Robert Kaplan will further discussion on U.S. Chinese relations. Uh, Dan Jurgen, the um, the energy expert will talk about the disputes over energy policies as always between the China and the United States. And then Paul Peterson uh, will also be joining us. Uh, he's going to be talking about trying to get schools open. Uh, we will probably have an extended discussion about police unions as well. Okay, that ends um, our conversation for today. I want to thank our speakers, each of us of them, for joining us. I'd like to thank my co-host, Rick Banks, and I'd also like to thank all the listeners for their participation listening in. Uh, thank you very much, uh, and that's a wrap. Goodbye, and you're, please hang up now. Bye-bye.